Acts chapter 16, as you're pulling out your Bible, or if you have a copy of God's Word on your phone or tablet and have that with you and want to bring that out, we are in the midst of a sermon series that we are calling E May Us, thinking about what does it mean to be a church family? What does it mean that God has called us together as a church? Our normal practice is that with the sermons, we would work through a passage of Scripture or we would work through a section of scripture week after week. That's almost always the way we'd approach it. We've done uh, something a little bit different the last few, day, or few weeks where we bounced around to different sections, honing in on a few verses that I feel like are foundational for who we are as a church and what God is doing to shape us into a church that, that honors and glorifies him. And so this morning we're gonna be looking at Acts chapter 16. On the back of your bulletin, as you came in, if you are new to Emmaus, if you turn your bulletin or your worship guide over to the back, you'll see that there are some sermon notes on there. I always want to remind you that if you lose your bulletin or you're just not much of a paper person, the bulletin, the sermon, all of this material is online at EmmausOKC.org. And so if you ever want to refer back to something or you're just trying to access something online, you're able to do that. Also, Hopefully this will not catch anybody by surprise because I talk about it so often, but our church is in the middle right now of approaching our 30th birthday as a church. In December, Emmaus will turn 30 as a church, and so we are talking a lot about 30 for 30. 30 years that God has given to this church family, preparing us for 30 more, and whoever knows how many beyond that, Lord willing, but we're doing things this year to say, who are we as a church and how does this prepare us for moving forward? One of the things we're doing is we're gonna take our very best stab at paying off our building debt. We have already done this calendar year an incredible job making progress toward that extra funds given toward the building fund. We're at a place right now where between now and December, we would need just over $150,000 extra to be able to pay off our building debt, to celebrate our 30th birthday being debt-free as a church family. Now, I know $150,000 extra beyond budget sounds like a huge amount, and if you're here as a guest or you're here and, you know, the one thing that always turns you off about church is the preacher talking about money and that sort of thing, but know that we're talking about this because being debt-free then sets us free to do more ministry, to do more outreach, not to look inwardly to ourselves, but to say we have all this much more in our budget to be able to minister to the community around us, to be able to do missions, to be able to reach families in this area. And so 150 is a big number, I realize. Last year, 2015, right at 200 individuals gave financially to Emmaus. More than that, when you factor in some small gifts, but when you're talking about regular giving, we were in that area. If 100 of those gave $1,000 and 100 more gave $500, that would get us to where we need to go. Um, that makes it feel more doable. That kind of puts it in a way that we think, you know what, that's something that we might be able to do. And so on the bottom of your bulletin on the back there is just a reminder to keep that in front of you, that that's something that we're working toward as a church family. If you're a guest of ours, know that we're doing this 
because we want to be about serving the Lord, not about serving ourselves. We're doing this because we want to move toward a future where we're able to be used by the Lord to reach out in our community, to reach out in the world, to do those things he's calling us to do. And so we want to keep this in front of us, but I want to give you an update to say that we've already this year paid a lot of money toward the building, and we're at this point moving forward, and we'll keep you updated as we continue to go uh, forward from here throughout the year. When you turn 30, you don't want that to sneak up on you, so I'm doing my job to, to keep that in front of us. All right, Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 25. Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 25. Here's what it says. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Verse 32, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. May God bless the reading of his word. Okay, as we start this morning, I want us to solve a perennial problem, all right? So up on the screen is going to become become an image. Hands in the air for half full. Half full? Hands in the air for half empty. All right, yeah. And don't tell me that it's actually all the way full and it's half air and half water. Don't give me that. Or don't tell me that it can be refilled so it's always half full. I don't want to hear that. I live in a world, and this is my personality, where that glass admittedly is half empty. Uh, My approach to playing sports is when a game was finished, the only thing I would remember from the game is what I had done wrong in the game. Now, one of my brothers, who was an all-state athlete, it wasn't that he didn't try. He tried really hard. He was a fantastic athlete. But when the game was over, he remembered what he had done well. I remember one time that he dropped a fly ball in a Little League game, and his team lost, and he came off to the side, and I thought, man, he's going to be crushed. And the first thing he said when he got off to the side was, hey, where do you guys want to eat dinner? Dinner? How can you think about food at a time like this? You just dropped the, the fly ball. At the, you would have had to drag me off the field if that would have happened to me. But like I said, it wasn't that he didn't try hard. I mean, he was an all-state athlete, but he just wasn't bothered by those things. He would move on. I'm one of those persons, though, if I'm not careful, I end up seeing the negative in everything, or I see what's wrong with something. And there's a part of that. If you're a leader, or if you're a business owner, or if you're an executive at work, 
part of what makes you good at what you do is just that you naturally see what's wrong with something because you want to be able to fix it and make it better. So there's a positive side to this, that we see what needs to be fixed and we want to make it better. But if we're not careful, we spend all of our time thinking about what is wrong with something and thinking about what is negative about something. And I want you, as my church family, to hear from me that is, we explore things at Emmaus, as we make changes to things, as we seek to do things better, to do more better together, I want to guard my heart, and I want to guard us as a church that we don't lose sight of the great things that God does among us. Because if we're not careful, we'll see changes, we'll think about things, we'll see things that need to be done better, and the result of that is that we create this negative culture, this negative environment, we're always seeing what's wrong with something. And let's just be honest, there's enough negativity in the world already without us helping it. And there's enough negative perception about church already without us helping it in that way. This doesn't mean that we have a pie in the sky mentality that everything's always okay and all we see is rainbows and flowers and butterflies. We acknowledge that there are things that need to be better but at the same time, we acknowledge that through the power of God's Spirit, He has created in the church a rejoicing community. That we are to be a people who are rejoicing about the good things that God does in us and among us. And so I want to take Pentecost Sunday today to remind us from this passage that we are to be a people who are to celebrate, who are to rejoice who are to say, God, you have done this by your power and your grace, and we are not going to miss that. Because we need to be a people who are willing to come together and rejoice and celebrate. You see a lot of pictures of this in scripture, but one of my favorite is Acts chapter 16. And so we're just gonna walk through this passage a step at a time. On your uh, notes on the back, you can see I've just kind of broken it down into uh, a few different main points, but we're not going to focus too much on the wording there. We're just going to take the passage as it comes. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to this, were listening to them. So this whole idea of being a rejoicing community begins with people who are celebrating, who are rejoicing in the midst of suffering. If the prisoners here had been grumbling, complaining, cursing, yelling, wouldn't have been that strange. Nobody would have really paid attention to them. But in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of the difficult circumstances, they were choosing to celebrate. They were choosing to rejoice in the midst of suffering. In the world around us, when people look at your life and see difficult circumstances, see times of suffering, and they see you celebrating, worshiping, not this weird celebration that pretends nothing bad is happening, but a celebration that says, yes, life is hard, yes, these circumstances are, are difficult, but I will still praise the Lord. I will still worship him. I will still celebrate his goodness in my life. When people see that, they're like the other prisoners here, and they pay attention. We want to live a life that is highly questionable. We want to live a life where people look at us and say, why are you doing this? 
why would you act that way in the midst of suffering? Because it's a wide open door to talk about the reason we're able to rejoice, the reason we're able to celebrate, the reason we're able to say, what I'm facing right now is not the end of the story. Then it goes on in verse 26, and it says, suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. This situation shows us that for the jailer here, his life is literally shaken up at this point. Now we've come to a point in the state of Oklahoma where all jokes are off regarding earthquakes. So we will just leave all the earthquake jokes to, to the side for right now in Oklahoma and being careful not to read something inappropriately into this passage, but literally this earthquake represents his life being shaken up. He is in a situation that he has no control over, a situation that's going to lead literally to brokenness, literally to crumbling, literally to things falling down around him. And you've been in those situations before in your life where it feels like the foundation is shaking in your life. It feels like everything is starting to fall down around you. It feels like the world is crumbling. It's out of control. And oftentimes in our lives, we have to be brought to a situation that we can't control in order to be reminded that we're not God, that we don't have ultimate control. These situations come into our life where we realize, I can't do anything to fix this on my own power. This is beyond anything that I could ever control, anything that I could ever do anything about. Those are hard moments, but many of you could stand up and say, that was the turning point in my life. That was the point when I realized I can't do this on my own. I have to turn to the Lord. Because look at what happens to the jailer in his brokenness. Look at verse 27. It says, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. When life is falling down, when life is broken, when things are crumbling, it feels like the world's ending. And so oftentimes, the only response we see at the time is self-destruction. When people's lives begin to fall apart, oftentimes, all of us, it's true of, we become self-destructive. Whether that's self-destructive behaviors like drugs or alcohol or inappropriate relationships that lead us down disastrous routes, or sometimes literally becoming self-destructive to the point of suicide, what we find throughout Scripture is that the wages of sin is death. Every point from Genesis 3 all the way up through what we read in the New Testament, we know that the brokenness of the world, the brokenness of the sin, always leads to destruction. And if you're here and you're not a spiritual person and you don't particularly believe in the Bible, that's a point that we can still agree on. Because all you have to do is look at the world around us to see that brokenness often and usually leads to more brokenness, which usually leads to destructive behavior, which always leads to death. We live in a world where those things are true. And let me say as a quick aside, obviously I don't know everybody's story in a room this size, but if you are at a point and you find yourself going down a road that is destructive to yourself, if you find yourself wondering, should I keep going? Is this worth it? Find somebody to talk to today. 
There are people around you who love you and care about you. At the end of the service, I stay up here afterward. Do not go down a path where brokenness leads to self-destruction because that is what the enemy wants to happen. And there is life beyond that. This is not the end of the story. So I realize I could say that word and it could pertain to nobody in here. But if you're in that situation, know that you are loved, that you are cared for. Do not leave this place without talking to somebody about that. So this jailer is in a place of brokenness that is leading to self-destruction. But look what happens next. Verse 28. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. When people are broken, when their lives are leading to destruction, God has an amazing way of putting people in place to give hope to those situations. It's almost like he does it on purpose. (laughs) That he has people in those situations who are able to speak hope and life into someone who is broken and whose life is headed toward destruction. Many of you could say, I remember when that happened in my life. My life was going down a course that was going to lead the wrong direction to the wrong things and someone spoke into my life. Someone said, you don't have to go that way. Don't harm yourself. There is life. There is hope beyond this. And they spoke into your life. The greatest opportunity that God gives us is to be able to do that for other people. When you become a friend to someone, when you make yourself available to someone, when you're someone that a person can trust, then when their life begins to fall apart, they're going to come to you. And when they come to you, you have an opportunity to speak hope and life to them. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15 is a great reflection of this. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15 says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who ask you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Always be prepared to speak to people who ask you, why do you have hope? God puts you in particular places. Let me give you a few places. These are four words that I want us to use a lot as we think about the way the Lord works in our lives. Here they are. Where you live, where you learn, where you work, where you play. Live, learn, work, play. Those areas of your life, they're not all going to pertain to everybody, but almost all of them will pertain to almost everybody. Live, learn, work, play. Those places, God has positioned you so that you are able to speak hope and life into someone who is broken and their life is leading to destruction. Take every advantage of where you live, learn, work, and play, knowing that God has put you there for a purpose. What comes next? Verse 30. Then he brought them out, so the jailer brought out Paul and Silas and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Now when the jailer here says, What must I do to be saved? Let's be honest that he's probably not thinking about salvation from sins at this point. (laughs) That's not the top idea on his mind. He's thinking How can I be saved from death? How can I be saved from my authority figure? How can I save my job? Oftentimes, when people come to us and they're broken and they're hurting, the first thing on their mind is not spiritual things. 
They're thinking, how does my marriage survive? How do I survive with my kids? How do I continue to make it through life with everything that's going on and everything that's broken? They come to us with that idea. And the good news of scripture is that when scripture speaks of salvation, it does always speak of salvation from sins, but salvation is even a bigger concept in scripture. It's this holistic salvation that God brings as he makes everything new, as he redeems us, not just saving us from our sins, but saving us so that we are able to live as his people, as part of his kingdom. And so the jailer comes and says, sir, what must I do to be saved? Here's the image that I think of for the jailer there. I think of the image of raising the white flag. One of my professors in college said that the best illustration he knew of of someone being saved and becoming a Christian was raising the white flag. When you battle through life saying, I can do this on my own, I can take care of my own problem, I don't need God, I don't need the Bible, I don't need church, it's all just a crutch that people use to lean on, And then you get to a point and you realize, I can't do this on my own. This is beyond my control. I need a savior and that savior is not myself and you raise the white flag and say, I give up. I can't do this. That is a beautiful image of salvation. And what Paul says in response is how are you saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what the jailer said. The jailer said, what must I do to be saved? Paul's response is, you don't have to do anything. It's already been done for you. That's the good news of Christianity. You don't have to do anything. There's nothing you can do at this point to bring that salvation. It's been done for you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What he has done. Trust in him, and then you will find salvation. Okay, Now we're all gonna take a quick break before we go to the next points and we're all gonna look up and look at the bird. All right, he's up there, he's on the beam. Do we have two? I think we have two, don't we? Yeah. I wanna know who's releasing the birds in here, so. uh, Okay. It's like when I coached t-ball and uh, little kids soccer. You know, you play soccer out at South Lakes and the airplanes take off and then the whole game stops while everybody watches the airplane go over. And you have the one kid who really wants to be there and they score while everybody else watches the airplane go over uh, at South Lakes. So uh, I know how this works. Okay, so verse 30, we find out that the jailer reaches his white flag moment. He raises the white flag and says, I can't do this, I need salvation. Paul says, good. I know you can't do it. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will find salvation. So look what happens next. Verse 32. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And then verse 33, it says that he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized. There's the phrase I was trying to get to in verse 33. He was baptized at once. So after he trusts in the Lord, he believes on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, he's baptized at once. He's baptized in response to God's saving work in his life. Now this brings up a couple of interesting questions about how we understand baptism and how baptism is is portrayed, especially in the book of Acts, but all throughout the New Testament. First question, is the act of baptism necessary for salvation. 
The answer here and all throughout the New Testament seems to be clearly no, because when he says, what must I do to be saved, what does Paul say? He says, believe in the Lord Jesus. He's very clear that that is the foundation for salvation. It's not the act of baptism that brings salvation, but equally true is that throughout the New Testament, and especially in the book of Acts, the act of salvation is tied, or the act of baptism is tied very close to salvation, that someone is saved and then they're baptized. Why? To display, to show this is what God has done in my life. It becomes this outward portrayal, it becomes this sign of this is what God has done in my life. How do you think about this for kids? Probably one of the most often uh, asked questions I get is, hey, my kid is talking about salvation, they're talking about Jesus, what should we do about baptism for my child? Many of you have this question for your kids and, and your grandkids. The first thing that I would preach is point them over and over and over back to the gospel, to Jesus Christ. How are you saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus. Point the kids back over and over and over again to that point, that they're always going back to Christ as the foundation for their salvation, seeing that baptism is the way that they're able to show their friends and show other people what God is doing in their life. Here's a couple of words to help you out as you talk with your kids about salvation and about baptism, and, and this is something that, that I've been trying to learn some more about the last few weeks. Here's a couple of words. Comprehension, conviction, commitment. Comprehension, do they understand what it means to trust in Jesus? Do they, at the best level possible for their age, do they understand, they comprehend it? Conviction, is God doing something in their life that only he could do at that point? It's not you, it's not grandpa and grandma, it's not aunt and uncle, it's not their brother or sister. It's you can see that there is conviction in their life from the Spirit and commitment. Do they seem, do they show signs, fruit of being committed to the Lord? So comprehension, conviction, commitment. Frankly, that's a good model for adults. That's for a good model for anyone, but especially as you're thinking about your kids and how do you talk to them about baptism. One of the phrases that stands out to me from this passage is that when the, believe, or when the jailer believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, he's baptized at once. One thing that happens with adults often is if you grew up in a church that practiced infant baptism, or maybe you came to faith in Christ at some point and you weren't baptized after that, one of the things that happens to us as, a, as adults is the longer you go without being baptized, the harder it come, becomes to take that step. Because it starts to feel like something that little kids do, or it starts to feel like something, you know, I probably missed my opening, I probably missed my chance to be able to do that, and so then we just kick the can down the road further and further. If you're an adult, and you have not been baptized following salvation in Christ as a way to display to the world around you that this is what God has done in my life, don't think it's too late, or don't think that's something for kids. It's a powerful, a powerful picture, and it's a huge step of faith in your life as well to say this is who God is, this is how he's worked in my life, and I want others to know this. And so we see here that the jailer is baptized in response to salvation. Then we go on, to the next portion, and we find out 
that this offering of salvation was for everyone who was involved. Look back in uh, verse 31. It says, you will be saved, you and your household. And then in verse 32 it says, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. In verse 32 it talks about all who were in his house. Verse 33, I think it says at the end, of verse 33, he was baptized at once, he and all his family. There are several references in here that talk about that what happens with the jailer ends up happening to everyone around him. So the question is, and sometimes the idea is given that because the jailer was saved, everyone around him and his family was automatically saved. That is not what's being taught here. That's not the picture that's being given. What's being given is that salvation, the word of God, is being given to the whole family, is being presented to the whole family on the same terms that it was given to the jailer. This is not mass conversion where nobody had a say in it, where nobody had a chance to respond. The word of the Lord is spoken to them all in the same way. What's equally true is that in the New Testament, you see the family unit being lifted up, and oftentimes whole families will come to faith in Christ at the same time, each making their own decision, but whole families will come to faith in Christ. This might be the case in your life. Sometimes a dad becomes a follower of Jesus, and not long after, the mom and kids will do the same thing. That is a beautiful New Testament picture. Oftentimes, it's actually the opposite that happens, even in our world. A kid will come to faith in Christ, maybe at Vacation Bible School or at Falls Creek, and because of that kid coming to faith in Christ, you'll see their parents come to faith in Christ, each of them believing in the Lord on their own, but God loves to work in family dynamics. This, this verse as well, I don't want to pass over this too quickly, but this verse as well is often used by churches who will baptize babies, uh, many of you probably grew up in churches, or some of you may have been baptized as, as infants. And so this verse, and, and a verse in Colossians chapter 2 is often used in reference to that. But, but it's very inconclusive, and it doesn't seem to point in that direction. What you see throughout Scripture consistently with baptism is that baptism happens in response to the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so that's why at Emmaus, we don't baptize infants. We don't baptize babies because we believe that baptism is, is a display, is a picture of what God is doing in someone's life when they believe and they trust in him. So there's a lot more we can say about that, but I know that that might be a question that people have. Why does your church not baptize babies? Why do you not sprinkle like other churches do? It's because we see baptism as a response, as a step of faith, following salvation, trusting in Jesus Christ. Okay, two more, and then we're gonna be finished here. The next thing that happens is he becomes active. This jailer becomes active and involved with the believers. In verse 33, it says he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And then in verse 34, at the beginning of verse 34, it says he brought them up into his house and set food before them. These things that the jailer does at this point are not things that jailers normally did for prisoners. Don't miss that in this, in this situation. These things of washing their wounds, of caring for them, of inviting them into his home, of setting food before them, this is not what jailers normally did with prisoners. 
what you're seeing is you're seeing a picture of God transforming his life. And get the picture, literally breaking down the walls between him and Paul and Silas. Because when this story begins, there is a literal wall, a gate, jail bars, between the jailer and Paul and Silas. With the earthquake, those walls crumble, they break down, and you see those same walls breaking down socially. And now groups of people who normally wouldn't have eaten together, a jailer who normally wouldn't have stooped down to wash the wounds of prisoners, they are being brought together. And this is a beautiful picture. One of the clearest pictures in the New Testament of what it means to come together as a church. That God brings together a diverse group of people to love and care for one another in ways that they would have never done if left to themselves. God's Spirit so transforms people that he breaks down these dividing walls. He brings them together to care for one another. Let me implore you, beg you, urge you on the basis of the New Testament to commit yourself to a local church. It doesn't have to be Emmaus. We don't need to be the church home for everyone in this region. Many of you are even visiting from out of town. This isn't going to be your church home. Students, especially as you graduate, as you go off places, commit yourself to a local church. Get involved with a group of people where God's spirit is at work and where he calls you to cross boundaries that you wouldn't have crossed otherwise to care for one another. It matters that we engage with a local church. It matters that God's spirit brings us together. The cool thing about Acts 16 is you have a female business owner who's probably single, probably quite wealthy. You have a demon-possessed slave girl and you have a jailer all three of whom are saved in this chapter and are brought together. A female business owner, a young demon-possessed slave girl, and a jailer. Think about those people coming together and the reason it happens is because of the movement of God's spirit. And then finally, what happens at the very end? Verse 34. So after he brings them in and sets the food before them, it says, he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Remember how the whole story began in verse 25, Paul and Silas were rejoicing. How does the story end in verse 34? The jailer is rejoicing. Rejoicing in the Lord in the midst of difficult circumstances is what bookends, what brings together this particular story in Acts, that God is creating a community in which people rejoice because of his work among them. The jailer is finding that when he believes in God, God doesn't take away his pleasures. God exceedingly, aboundingly increases his pleasures. I feel like the jailer here in Acts 16 is, is a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. It's gonna be up on the screen. Psalm 16, verse 11. The psalmist says, "'You have made known to me the path of life, what path was the jailer going down when the story began? He was going down the path of death, the path of destruction. But you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. 
the jailer finds Psalm 1611 to be true in his life because he trusts in the Lord and because God brings him together with this community of believers. One of the most important things that we can do as a church is we can celebrate together how God is at work in our lives. When you have a meeting with someone and you're seeing something that needs to be addressed, seeing something that's negative and needs to be changed, before you get into the negative, don't miss talking about the positive that the Lord is doing. Don't miss out in your Sunday school classes, in your families, in your relationships with your friends. Don't miss out talking about what God is doing in your life. And you may be thinking, hey, that'd be cool you know, if God did something big in my life, but really all I did this last week was just survive at work and take care of my family and try to say my prayers a few times. When I say that God is at work in your life, I'm not talking about always these huge moments of light pouring down or birds circling you while you preach. Or I'm not talking about those moments in life. Oftentimes, God's greatest work in our lives is when we just day by day live quiet lives, devoting ourselves to the things of the Lord, seeking to be available to share his love with other people. That sometimes is the greatest testimony that you can give about God's work in your life. So here's my challenge for you, Emmaus. I want us to be a rejoicing, celebrating community who shares how God's at work in our life, and I'm gonna give you a very easy way to do that. On the screen is an email address, 30 at EmmausOKC.org. This is a new email address we've created in our system, 30, representing our 30th birthday that you're gonna get annoyed about and beg to be over, but I'm gonna keep talking about it. 30 at EmmausOKC.org. I want you to use that email address to share about how God is at work in your life. Maybe your life was broken and the Lord brought somebody along to speak hope to you, Maybe God puts you in a situation where you were able to speak into somebody else's life. Maybe you find yourself connected with someone else through God's spirit that you would have never had a relationship with otherwise. Maybe God has done something simple like you made it through the week and you loved and were patient with your children. Whatever it is, share those stories. We're gonna use this. If you don't have an email address, write it down on a piece of paper Give it to us, send it to the church office. We want to be able to compile these stories. More than that, more than emailing your story, let me encourage you also to share your story with someone else. Talk to people, celebrate with your church family about how God is working in your life. For some of you, that next step might be that we see you baptized in a few weeks or a few months, that that is your act of celebration. Maybe for some of you, it's choosing to commit to a local church to say, I'm going to engage. I'm going to be a member. I'm going to give myself to people only by the work of God's spirit. I'm going to allow God to use me. Whatever it is, let's be a community. Let's be a group of people on Pentecost Sunday who say, you know what? There's a lot of negativity in the world. There's a lot of things we could find that are wrong. We're going to celebrate. We're going to rejoice only because of the work of God's spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this story from the book of Acts. God, we pray that you would work in us and through us. God, that people who are broken and hurting, 
would find hope and salvation and life through Christ. God, knowing that you rescue us, that you draw us out of those broken situations and you connect us with other believers. God, we take steps of faith like baptism. We join our lives with local churches. We rejoice together about your work among us. God, would you continue to do that in our church family, in this city, around the world. Father, we want to respond to you in ways that honor you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.